infants in your sight, uh, needy, desperate, weak, uh, unable, Lord, but by your great mercy, you still loved us, and you brought us into your kingdom by faith in Jesus. And uh, so, Father, I pray that from young to old in this hour now, as we all focus our attention on your word, that you would feed us uh, so that we would continue to grow into maturehood, into adulthood in Christ. Um, And so, Lord, we pray that you be with the Sunday school teachers, that you would give them much, much grace and patience that you would also be uh, with the students so that they could receive and learn about their great Savior. Help us also, as we now look into your word, sustain us with the bread of life, Jesus himself. Uh, Pray, God, that you would feed us and nourish us in this hour by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And, of course, we are making our way through the series called Come and See, which are these invitations to come and see Jesus again, see him in a new light. And today we're looking at John 4, which is a very familiar story about Jesus and the woman of Samaria. And so the question we're asking is, what does Jesus invite this woman to? What is Jesus, what is he inviting us to? So I've entitled this sermon, Come and Drink of Living Water. So please stand as we hear God's word and we receive it with reverence. John chapter 4, reading verses 1 to 18. Please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sakar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. The story of the woman at the well is a very famous story probably among the most famous in the entire New Testament. 
Now, John's record of it is very lengthy as well. It covers 42 verses. It's, some say, the longest conversation Jesus has had with an individual. But here's what's interesting. Despite its popularity and its significance and its length, I find it interesting the Samaritan woman is left nameless. She's left nameless. Is it because John doesn't know her name? I don't think so. I think she's left nameless to emphasize exactly how little standing this woman had in society. By being left nameless, it gives us a sense of her insignificance and the obscurity with which people would have viewed her and valued her. As we get a sense of how others perceive this woman, we then also get a sense of how Jesus uh, must have seen her through his eyes. We see a little bit more of the significance of Jesus stopping and talking with her. Now, here's what we need to understand about John 4. Last week, we covered John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus. Today, we're in John chapter 4. Here's what you need to understand. John chapter 4 is actually uh, part 2 of really one story about two different people. John, the author, is stitching two significant encounters together. He's stitching John 3 and John 4 together. Because first, you see, in John chapter 3, it's about a moral and a religious man named Nicodemus. And then John chapter 4 is about an immoral and irreligious woman without a name. John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he has a reputation to protect. In John chapter 4, the woman meets Jesus in the middle of the day because she has no reputation to worry about. In John 3, Nicodemus comes to the realization that he needs salvation by grace through the new birth, just like everybody else. In John 4, the Samaritan woman comes to the realization that a person like her can be saved by grace through faith, just like everybody else. You see, in John 3, we learn that those considered religious insiders are actually on the outside of the kingdom. And in John 4, we learn that those considered irreligious outsiders can actually be brought into the kingdom. John 3 teaches us that being a somebody in society doesn't help you earn standing before God. John 4 teaches us that being a nobody in society doesn't hurt you in your standing before God. You see, by contrasting both of these people, John is answering a very simple question. Who is Christianity for? Who has Jesus come to pursue? Who needs the gospel of grace? And the answer is everybody and anybody. You see, whether you're named like Nicodemus or you're shamed like the Samaritan, you need Jesus in your life. So as we reflect on the text today, whoever you are, the invitation is being extended to you. By Jesus, come and drink of living water. And so we're going to spend our time in today's text. We're going to look at three things in this story. We're going to look at an unexpected encounter, then an unquenchable thirst, and finally an unending spring. So first, look with me at this, an unexpected encounter. Verses 1 to 3 explain why Jesus has to journey north. So Jesus is presently and currently in Judea, and he needs to head back north to Galilee. So then verse 4 says this. Verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now an ancient reader would have read that, and he would have chuckled to himself. Because every Jew knew that you didn't have to pass through Samaria. You could easily go around it if you so chose to. 
In fact, many Jews would have preferred to have gone around Samaria because there was a deep-seated hatred and hostility and animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Pretty much to put it bluntly, the Jews harbored racist sentiments against people from Samaria. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this background. The hostility began centuries earlier, and it developed uh, over time into a full-fledged discrimination against one another, because here's what happened. In the 8th century BC, so about 720 years before Jesus was born, the northern kingdom of Israel was attacked and then defeated by the Assyrian Empire. Now, when the Assyrians came and they defeated Israel, the northern kingdom, what they did is they proceeded to deport and relocate anybody who had standing, anybody with distinction, anybody who was in an upper class, anybody with wealth. They moved them. They deported them. And in their place, the Assyrians repopulated Israel with many foreigners. So over centuries, the Jews up in the north began to intermarry with these foreigners, and they began to have children that weren't entirely Jewish. And so those who were entirely Jewish in the south began to judge those in the north. And then secondly, what happened when all these foreigners came in, they also brought in pagan worship, false gods. And so the Jews up north began to intermingle their worship to Yahweh, their worship to God, with these other religions, and it resulted in this syncretistic faith. In fact, the Samaritans up north rejected most of the Bible. They only kept the first five books of the Bible in something that's known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. So on these two accounts, race and religion, the Jews from the south considered the Samaritans impure. They judged them to be racially and religiously half-breeds. So this actually explains John's editorial comment in verse 9. He writes in parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now that word, literal translation of no dealings, means something more like they refuse to share utensils with the Samaritans. Now if you know anything about the Jewish culture, it's very, uh, the Middle Eastern culture is very hospitable. And so in a hospitable culture, to not share table fellowship, to not share dishes, to not share a meal, to not share utensils with somebody means you want nothing to do with them, means you're rejecting them. It's a very blatant rejection. And so you can just imagine the scene. This is how I imagine it, sort of like a high school cafeteria where there's this new transfer student. Uh, She's from Samaria. She's trying to find a table in the cafeteria, and she's walking around, and every time she comes to an open spot, the other Jewish teenager sort of puts their backpack there and say, this spot's taken. And then the scene cuts, and next thing you know, she's eating alone in the bathroom. And you just feel so sorry for her. The Jews, they, they considered the Samaritans to eat with them, to associate with them, defiling, unclean. I don't want anything to do with you. I've refused to share my table with you. I've refused to share a meal with you. And so knowing all of that background, when Jesus begins a conversation with this woman, it's entirely unexpected. And the woman's response confirms it. So Jesus asks her for a drink, and what does she say in verse 9? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus should have no affiliation with her, and yet he breaks right through the racial barrier without batting an eye. He crosses over a racial barrier, but he does a lot more than that. 
You see, not only does he cross over a racial barrier, he crosses over a gender barrier. Because it wasn't typical for a man to associate with a woman like this. So again, notice the woman's surprise to Jesus. How is it that you would you ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? In fact, in verse 27, it says that the disciples have gone into the city for food. When they come back in verse 27, John writes, they marvel that he was talking with a woman. So Jesus, this Jewish man, is crossing over racial barriers. He's crossing over gender barriers. But thirdly, he's crossing over social barriers. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He's a respected man. He has people following him. And by contrast, this woman appears to have nothing respectable about her. She comes to the well in the sixth hour, which is noon. Why would she come to the well at the hottest part of the day to do the tiring physical labor of drawing water? Well, because she was intentionally avoiding the group of women who would have come together earlier in the day, in the cooler part of the day. So she is a social outcast. She is an outsider. And yet Jesus crosses over the social barrier because those cannot keep him out. So he crosses over a racial barrier. He crosses over a gender barrier. He crosses over a social barrier. And third, fourthly, he crosses over a moral barrier. But he's, he's a moral and he's an upright man. He knew God's law. People came to ask him questions all about it. But yet here he is talking with a woman of dubious moral character. Whatever the issue is in her life, she either, one, felt so ashamed of it herself that she kept her distance, or two, people were shaming her that they made her keep her distance. In either case, Jesus is in a position where no Jewish rabbi would ever find himself talking with an immoral Samaritan woman who is a social outcast. You cannot understand Jesus. You cannot get a proper picture of Jesus unless you understand all that he is doing here. And John, the author, is sort of writing in a way where he's developing anticipation because of the way the details about her story are revealed. It's quite uh, fascinating. So first he mentions Jesus has to go through Samaria. And the readers would have gasped, oh, Samaria, he had to go, what? Then he tells us, he goes through Samaria, which was already shocking, and then he meets a woman at a well. Now, why would that be a big deal? Well, if you know anything uh, about the Old Testament and you're familiar with it, you know that in ancient times, uh, the well was pretty much like uh, coffee meets bagel. Now, if you're older and you have no idea what that is, it's, uh, the well is like eHarmony or uh, ChristianMingle.com. Not that I've ever been on those sites. Uh, you see, because Jacob found his wife at a well, and then Isaac found his wife at a well, and Moses found his wife at a well. And so when Jesus is at a well meeting a woman from Samaria, the readers would have gasped even more. And then finally, to give the sort of shocker, in verse 18, we find out that this woman had a promiscuous romantic and sexual history. She had been married to five different men, and the person she was living with now wasn't her husband. And at this point, every reader, their jaw would have dropped. So low. I mean, if Nicodemus was here, he would have had a heart attack. And yet John makes it a point that Jesus went out of his way to find this woman. Jesus didn't stumble into her. 
He didn't accidentally encounter her. He didn't bump into her by happenstance. Neither did she find him. She didn't pursue him. She wasn't seeking him. It was Jesus who found her, pursued her, and sought her. Now the question is this, in what sense did Jesus have to pass through Samaria? He had to because he had a divine appointment with her. She didn't know it, but he did. You see, what was unexpected for the woman wasn't unexpected by Jesus. He had scheduled this meeting with her even before she was ever born. And so in this meeting, the teacher of the law meets this great transgressor of the law, and the paragon of righteousness meets this person of unrighteousness, and the Savior meets this Samaritan. This is a divine appointment. You see, there are no divine accidents in God's plan. There are only divine appointments, divine schedules. Which means this, if you are here today as a believer, if you are united to Jesus by faith, it was no accident that you came to know him. It was because at some point in your life, he made a divine appointment with you. That he came to you when you needed him and where you needed him most. Yeah, sure, it may have been you who called out to God, but it was he who found you. It was he who was knocking at the door of your heart. And you have to know that if you know Jesus today, that there were so many barriers that he crossed, not just a racial barrier, a moral barrier, a gender barrier, a social barrier. No, he crossed the great barrier between heaven to come to earth. He crossed the barrier from glory to humility to get you. He crossed the barrier of eternity to enter into time. He crossed the barrier of riches into poverty to get you. He crossed the barrier of royalty into servanthood. He crossed the barrier of life into death. Why? To find you. If you are here today, you are not here by accident. The Lord found you through a divine appointment. Now, if you are here today and you are not a believer, You do not trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Sure, you may not have planned it this morning. You may not have expected it. Today could be the day that Jesus wants to encounter you. It may very well be the case that before history began, that God had scheduled a divine appointment with you here today at 300 High Point Drive at 1.50 p.m. This is how Jesus works. Encountering those he wants, when he wants, when it's most Unexpected for us, but most needed by us. So Jesus, he encounters us in such unexpected ways. When he does so, what does he want us to know? What does he want us to know? And this is our second point, an unquenchable thirst. An unquenchable thirst. Jesus says to the woman, look with me at verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, Jesus is saying that there's something available to this woman called living water. Now, living water is fresh water or running water. And this is important because it was much more, uh, it was much more preferable to have living water than still water that was drawn from a well. Because imagine a water in a well. You're in the Middle East. 
All the rainfall falls, it collects into this, to this well, so the water is stagnant and it's brackish, which meant the water was always lukewarm. It didn't have a fresh source to feed it, so it was never cooling, it was never refreshing. And so naturally, when Jesus talks about living water, this woman, she is intrigued by what Jesus is offering, because it definitely sounds more refreshing and satisfying than what she's been drinking. So she says to him in verse 11 and 12, read with me, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And what we begin to notice here is that she's just like Nicodemus. That she can't help but take what Jesus says literally, because last week when Jesus told Nicodemus he needed to be born again, he thought, how can a grown man go back into his mother's room? In the same way, she doesn't understand quite yet the spiritual truths Jesus is talking about. Because when Jesus talks about spiritual water, he's not thinking of earthly water like she is. But until she understands what he's talking about, she's never really actually going to understand how temporary and unsatisfying the earthly water is. I mean, she'll feel it in her body as she drinks it and keeps getting thirsty, but she won't ever actually know. And so here's what Jesus does, and it's gracious that he does it. He exposes to her, he reveals to her her true condition. Verse 13, read with me. Jesus says, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And this is where Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, begins his teaching lesson. And so this is where all of us, not just the woman at the well, but all of us need to begin to listen very carefully. Okay? The earthly water that we drink The earthly water that we draw from the wells and cisterns of this present age, the water that we drink that comes and is derived from this world will never satisfy because it was never meant to. How do we know this is true? Because all, every single one of you in this room is searching. You see, not only have you been searching or have you once searched, you are currently searching. Why? Because nothing seems to satisfy. There's that song uh, by U2, Bono Pensley's lyrics, and I was thinking about whether to include this or not, but I think the point is, is this, that, that everyone can relate to this song. He writes, uh, I have climbed the highest mountain, I have run through the fields, I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. See, that's deep within every single person, whether they realize it or not, because until you encounter the Savior, you have an unquenchable thirst, and you will never find what your soul is looking for. What water are you drinking of? From what well are you laboring and drawing water to try and satisfy your thirst? Now, Jesus asks something really hard and difficult to this woman. She says to Jesus in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, Jesus does something here that the younger people would call savage. Sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. 
And he brings up the sore subject of her husband. Sir, give me this water. We'll go and call your husband and come here, he says. And what does that do? It forces the woman to admit that she has no husband. Okay, think about this. Jesus Christ, just two chapters earlier, we saw that Jesus had the divine foreknowledge to see Nathaniel sitting under a fig tree and to know what he was reading. Jesus, who had the divine foreknowledge to know that if he went to the well at the sixth hour, he would find a woman there, did he really not know she didn't have a husband? Of course he knew. In fact, he confirms it in verses 17 to 18. He says, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And you listen to that and it's kind of like, well, if you knew, why'd you ask? It's almost like knowing somebody has a bruise here and you're just like, hey, can I touch it? Can I press it? No, and you just go for it. Or, or someone has a freshly formed scab and it's healing and you just kind of go and you want to pick. at what is Jesus doing? And here's what you realize, that Jesus is not being cruel, but he's being compassionate. Because he wants to expose in her the well from which she has been drinking. He wants to expose the polluted water she's been trusting to satisfy her thirst. Because what we find out is that she has had five husbands. She's been going from lover to lover. She's been going from man to man. And she keeps going back to the well of men. And it's like drinking salt water. It's refreshing for a tiniest bit, but it leaves her more and more parched. So she's thirstier than ever. She has this hole, this loneliness. She thinks she, she thinks she can fill it with men and romance and being wooed. And she keeps going back, and she's thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. So husband after husband after husband, she drinks from a wealth that does not satisfy her. And this is a problem that every single one of us in this room have. Listen, the problem is not that you're thirsty. Jesus never faults the woman or us for being thirsty. The problem is not that you're drinking water. Jesus never corrects you to say, don't drink water. The problem is we are going to the wrong wells. We're ruining ourselves by drinking the water that leaves us dry and withered inside. And C.S. Lewis has this great section from his book, Mere Christianity, where he writes this. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. What well are you running to? What water are you drinking? Is it the suggestion or is it the real thing? We were all of us meant to drink. We were made thirsty. We were made with the capacity to be satisfied. And yet we cannot help because of our own twisted desires to draw from the wrong source. This is not a new problem. 
This is the struggle of God's people all throughout history. Hundreds of years earlier, Israel had the same exact issue. They erred in the same way. So God in Jeremiah 2.13 confronts them. God says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. How aptly this describes each of us today. That we forsake the fountain of living water only to drink from the cesspool of contaminated water. Friends, here's the question. Can you identify the wells that you keep running back to? Perhaps you are drawing from the well of security to try and provide for yourself your family, your future, and so you keep going to that. Maybe you're camping by the well of self-validation and trying to be satisfied with your performance and your, and your success and your reputation. Maybe some of you are, are drinking from the well of acceptance and you're sipping the water of, of peer pressure and, and compromise. But when you're not satisfied, what do you do? You just hop on over to the next well. Some of you know exactly this struggle of constantly looking to the horizon for the next thing, the next step, the next opportunity. But deep inside, you're all familiar with the horrible, haunting reality that it'll only be a short while before you just move on to the next well. Ken Hughes illustrates this well. He writes this. He says, when we are the age of young children... We think life will come together when we become teenagers and we get big and we get strong. And then we're teenagers and we think life is going to shape up when we finally get a car. And when we get our car, we expect life will finally be fulfilled when we graduate high school. And then we go to college and we think our needs will only be met in marriage. And then we're married and we think it will only come through children. After that, it's when the children leave the home. And finally, we pin our hopes on retirement. And he says, all we do is we look to the horizon. And when we get there, we're unsatisfied. And so we look a little more. And we keep going to these different wells. What, when, when does the pursuit end? When do you find what you're looking for? See, in this story, we have a woman who's going from husband to husband, guy to guy, lover to lover. And after the fifth man, her fifth husband, she's so uh, beaten and defeated, she is so broken and disenchanted that she doesn't marry the sixth man. She only lives with him. Or she doesn't see the point in the marriage vows. She doesn't see the point in the commitment to marital fidelity because perhaps she's finally realized, listen, okay, I understand now. The embrace of men, the romance of lovers can't truly satisfy my unquenchable thirst. But she doesn't know any better, and nothing else is as familiar as clinging on to men. That's all she knows. At least with him, that's familiar. At least with him, I can know what to expect. And so she holds on to this sixth man who's not her husband. And knowing exactly where she is, not just, not just physically knowing that she's at the well, but, but knowing exactly where she is spiritually and emotionally, Jesus has to go through Samaria. 
Jesus sets up this divine appointment, and he meets her at the well, knowing that only he can satisfy her unquenchable thirst. Why? Because all six men in her life failed. But where they failed to meet her true longings, Jesus comes as the seventh and final man in her life. With him, she will never need another. With him, she has finally found what she is looking for. So what about you? What wells are you going to over Jesus? Now, when I ask this question, I don't mean intellectually and abstractly, but practically and realistically. Don't ask yourself this question. Do I trust Jesus to satisfy me as living water? Don't ask yourself that. You know why? Because that question is too cognitive and it's too unhelpful. If you ask yourself, do I trust Jesus to satisfy me as living water, it's too easy to answer yes. Here's a better question to ask. What water do I drink of daily? If I say Jesus is my living water, do my actions prove that? Because none of you here would go a day without drinking physical water, so that means none of you go a day without drinking some kind of spiritual water. But if you're not drinking daily of his word, of him through word and prayer, if you're not daily meditating on him and his grace, then you are not drinking of Christ as your living water. Do you find satisfaction in Jesus or something else? See, that is a harder question to ask yourself. So are you satisfied in Jesus to quench your thirst? Do you believe that he offers a better living water? Here's the thing. If you want this living water, though, if you do yearn for it, if you do send your thirst for it, how do you get it? How does it become yours? And this is our third point, an unending spring. You see, this woman who's at the well only sees the stark contrast between herself and Jesus. Right? They're so different. Their experiences were worlds apart. So she's probably thinking, how in the world can Jesus know about the way that I thirst? How can Jesus understand the insatiable longings of my heart? She was unaware that Jesus actually understood her better than she understood herself. See, here's why. Listen, this woman, she's an outcast. She's socially rejected. She's marginalized. She's forsaken by others because of her sins and her shame. And so every day, she bears these scars. She carries them by herself and weighs heavily on her life. And when you live life this way, you feel so alone. She feels totally misunderstood. Nobody knows what I'm feeling she's thinking. But what the woman failed to understand was that Jesus would soon find himself in a similar boat. That he did this for her. Because later in Jesus' life, he too would become an outcast. He too would be socially rejected. He too would be marginalized and forsaken by others. Not because of anything else, not because of anything he had done, not because of any of his sin or his shame, but because he came to bear yours. You see, Jesus, this woman is an outsider. Jesus came as the ultimate insider. He lived in eternity with the Father. He was the ultimate insider, and yet for your sake, he became an outsider. 
that he was cast out of the city gates for you, that he was crucified outside of the city walls for you, that he carried scars on his body for you, that Jesus bore my sin and he bore your sin and he bore that Samaritan woman's sin so that our thirst can be taken away and we can drink of living water. Jesus comes not to be sympathetic for you and to you. He comes to be a substitute for you. And so at the well, Jesus says to the woman, give me a drink. And in that moment, she has no idea. She's unable to fully grasp the depth of his request. Because give me a drink echoed forward to another day, another six hour, when Jesus was hanging on a cross and moments before his death, he uttered these words. I thirst. You see, before the foundation of the world, Jesus had made another divine appointment. It wasn't a divine appointment with the woman at the Samaria, uh, the woman in Samaria. It was a divine appointment with the cross. And on the cross, he thirsted for us so that he could take our thirst away. That Jesus hung there parched and withering under God's wrath so that he could put an unending spring of water in you. And that by losing his life, you would receive eternal life. The question is, do you believe this? Not do you know it to be true, but do you believe that Jesus thirsted on the cross to take away our thirst? That now through him, you can have an unending spring of life, of joy, of satisfaction welling up inside of you. Do you believe this? Because if you want this living water, there are two things that must happen in your life. First, you must look to Jesus and drink of him. There is no other way to participate in this unending spring of water. Secondly, the first part many of you know, secondly, you must forsake the other wells and waters in your life. This is the greatest evidence that you've tasted and seen Jesus Christ. It's what we call repentance. Not only turning to Jesus, but in turning to Jesus, turning away from the things that distract you from him. Now, it's not here in this verse, but if you peek down to verse 28 in your Bibles, listen to what John writes. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? See, there's a small detail here that we can't overlook because the ancient reader wouldn't have missed it. Do you see it? Do you notice it? John writes, so the woman left her water jar and went away. And in that moment, we know that she gets the gospel. She understands exactly what Jesus is talking about. The truth finally hits home for her in her heart because leaving the water jar behind was a sign that she no longer needed to drink from the water of the world. It was a complete act of surrender to Jesus in faith, saying that your water is enough to sustain me and to satisfy me, so I do not need this water jar anymore. You see, you can't say that you trust Jesus as your living water and still cling closely to your old water jars as a backup plan. In the same way, the Israelites couldn't claim that they trusted God for provision daily in the wilderness of sending manna and then collect manna for the next day. 
In the same way, there's no way that we can say, Jesus, I trust you as my living water, and still cling to our earthly wells and our water jars to drink and to draw for ourselves in case Jesus doesn't satisfy. The question is, are you willing to leave your water jar behind? Has the gospel hit your heart so that you're willing to turn away from that which once satisfied to now fully turn to Jesus who meets your every longing and every thirst. In Jesus, have you found all that you are looking for? Let me close with Isaiah 55.1, God's gracious invitation where he writes, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. See, today Jesus invites you to himself and he says, come, come and drink of living waters. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you not only offer yourself to us through Jesus to satisfy our every longing, But then you've given to us the Lord's Supper by which we can actually have a foretaste of of that by eating and drinking the body and blood of Jesus. Now, God, the message we just heard solidified in the hearts of your people through this meal to which we now turn our attention and we ask that your spirit awaken us so that we could receive freely what you so graciously offer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, our true living water, and the love of God the Father Almighty, who would, in his divine wisdom, encounter us, meet us, and seek us out, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, who satisfies our thirsts when he brings us to Christ. May the blessing of God's May the blessing of God be with God's people both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Friends, hear the dismissal from Deuteronomy 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Go in peace, friends.